Let's just pray together, shall we? Praise the Lord. Father, we want to thank you so much, Lord, for the days in which we live. Thank you, Father, that these aren't easy days, but they're glorious days. And Father, thank you we have the opportunity of making a stand for our faith in these days. Father, there's so much humanism around, so much humanistic thinking. There's so much thinking that's against your word. And Father, thank you in these days you've raised us up as a standard against all the humanistic and devilish thinking that's around. Father, we're asking in Jesus' name that there should be such assurance in our hearts, such anointing of the Holy Ghost, that we should be fearless in this world. Father, I long to see the Church of Jesus Christ becoming another band of Puritans, those wonderful men who, were, who stood out for the truth, who spoke up when things were being said that were wrong. And Father, I'm asking in Jesus' name that we should be of that generation. Father, I'm just looking for spiritual giants in these days. And we thank you for the opportunities you've given us as a fellowship. Father, you've done amazing things in our midst in a very short time. Sometimes, Father, we don't know just how many changes you've made because they've happened so smoothly. But, Father, we're asking that this winter should not be a winter of discontent, but a winter of great strides forward for us as a fellowship. Father, we believe we're going to come into all the things. And, Father, I thank you. You are coming one day with your church. And, Father, I thank you one day you're coming for your church. But above everything, I thank you that before even you come for your church, you're going to come to your church. And, Father, we're looking for a manifestation of the fullness of Christ in our midst. And we pray, Father, that through these talks, which deal with nitty-gritty in the, in the midst of the fellowship, that, Father, we should come into the place where we are able to show your glory to full measure. Father, we ask you this morning to anoint us as we study these things together. Thank you for the excitement that's in our hearts about what you're doing. Hallelujah. And Father, we just commit ourselves to your work this morning and ask you to move us on, Lord. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise God. You remember that we're talking about fellowship life and quite slowly, actually, but quite surely, we're making our way through everything that affects a fellowship. And you remember a few Bible studies ago that I spoke about what were the aims of a fellowship. And we actually outlined six aims of fellowship life. Now we're still on number one and number two. Number one is the most important aim and number two is also vital. You remember what the first two aims are, I hope. They both have to do with our 100% commitment as individuals to God. The fact that we want to be and we should be 100% committed. The first aim was this. A fellowship is here to show its love for the Lord. That's the first thing. And secondly, to produce holy, stable and mature believers. And if we fail in either of those, then we fail full stop. And you remember, as we talked about praise and thanksgiving and about making melody in your hearts, we saw that actually number one and number two are united. They are combined together. That when you start showing your love for the Lord, you automatically produce stability and maturity and holiness within yourself. And you'll notice when we talked about praise, the more you praise God, the more you love the Lord, obviously, but the more mature you become as well. And so these two are related. 
And today, we're going to talk about what I call the acid test of our love. And we're going to see exactly the same thing. That when we show our love for the Lord, it also acts to produce holiness and stability and maturity within us. Okay, what is then the acid test of our love? Well, really, today we're going to talk about this. How do we know that we actually are loving the Lord? And how can we test how deep our love is for God? That's what we're going to talk about. Now, many people think that the louder you praise, the more you dance, the more you speak spiritual cliches, then the more you love the Lord. But I'm going to say to you today that actually that is not necessarily the case. But there is an acid test which every one of us can apply to our devotion to God. The problem is, when we're talking about love, the word love has lost its meaning. You know that old song, don't you? What is this thing called love? And unfortunately, it's something that we've never stopped to ask ourselves. What is love? You see, the world has made love just into a feeling, into an emotion. That's all, you know. Oh, wow, I'm in love, they say. And what they mean is, you know, they're feeling slightly dizzy every time this gorgeous person comes on the scene. And sometimes they feel so dizzy, they actually feel sick with it. And that's what they mean by love. It's just an emotional thing you see? And you often hear about, oh, we just met that evening, our eyes met, and we knew, you know, how did you know? Well, my stomach nearly came out of my mouth. And that's what they mean, you know, this is love. And so love is something that is feelings, but the tragedy is that that type of love is very unstable and very uncertain. And very often, people who've met like that, they find two years later, they wake up early one morning, they gaze at their partner and say, what am I doing here? You know, fancy my being married to this gook in the bed next to me. And it's gone. And then sometimes they say, I'm sorry, but it's just gone. Whatever there was between us, it's just gone. I'm sorry. And sometimes they decide, well, we'll carry on together anyway. A lot of marriages are intact today, you know, or seem to be intact, but there's no love between the people at all. Or they say, well, it's just a divorce. Or what happens, and this is even worse, someone else comes along and suddenly one of the partners in the marriage is beginning to feel sick again. <laughs> you know, and suddenly, oh, but the feeling's now there, but not for you, for her or for him. And so you've got this unstable thing that carries on, you see. And sometimes we apply that type of thing to God. And so we make our love for God and a sort of feelings thing, you know. And so you get people, we've talked about this before, in the meeting, they're feeling great. They feel love. Oh, wonderful. And there they are dancing, praising God. But the trouble is they wake up in the morning, it's gone. You see, it's absolutely vanished and suddenly, oh, sorry God, the feeling's just gone. I can't help it. It's just not there anymore. And they sit in the meetings just waiting for the feeling, whatever it is, to come back. You see? And that's what they think is love. That's unstable. That's up and down. That has no continuance in it, you know, no permanence at all. And it's not what Bible love is about. Do you know, love in biblical terms, God's love, is something which has commitment involved with it. Listen, if our Christian love is simply an emotional thing, then the more evenings we have, gather together singing, do Lord, do Lord, do remember me, or just as I am, and all the rest. You know, the more evenings we have like that, then the better. Get everyone emotionally stirred up. The more meetings you go to, 
the better it is for you. You know Christians, don't you? Like I know them. They go from this meeting to this meeting to this meeting. Do you know what they're doing? They're trying to keep that feeling going all the time, you know. Oh, I've just been to this meeting. And I've just been to... Oh, wonderful. The trouble is, the moment they stop, it's all gone. And that's really what they're fighting against. Biblical love is not that. Biblical love has commitment behind it. When God so loved the world, it wasn't just a feeling, you know. He committed himself in that love by sending his only beloved son who came for the sins of the world. And even though the world rejected his son and butchered him on the cross, God's love remained firm. Do you think that was a sort of, just a feeling? Do you think he enjoyed seeing his son butchered on the cross? Of course he didn't. But his love was committed love. And it had that sense of commitment. And you know, for 2,000 years, the world has rejected Christ. And yet still, it says in, in 1 Timothy 2, he desires all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. God's love remains fixed. And it's that commitment which is the essence of true love. It's committed love. We don't know very much about this in these days. But that's what true Bible love is all about. And that's why God, when he talks of love, is talking in terms of a covenant. I'm so thrilled that's what love means. Otherwise, you know, we would be very unstable as Christians. Every morning when we got up, we wouldn't know whether God still had those feelings towards us. And so we'd come to God and we'd say, dear God, can I tell you about my problems? And it could be one morning he'd say, forget it. I'm not fee I don't know where it's gone, but the feeling's gone. I thought you were great yesterday, but for some reason, it's just gone. It's not like that. See what love the Father has lavished upon us. I was in Chard just a, a week or so ago, and I told them, every time I read that verse in 1 John 3, I think of cream teas in Dorchester. <laughs> Always do, you know. See what love the Father's lavished on us. My, my wife comes along, she takes a little scone, puts a little bit of jam on and a little bit of cream. And I have a weakness for cream. So I take a little scone, a little dab of jam goes on the top, and oodles of cream poured over it. See what love the Father's lavished upon us, you see. His love is a commitment love. In the Old Testament, that type of love is referred to by a little phrase called loving kindness. Have you ever read that? And whenever you see the word loving-kindness or chesed in the Hebrew, chesed always means a committed love. God is never going to ever stop loving you. And, and David actually writes in Psalm 63, he says, Thy loving-kindness is better than life itself to me. To know you always love me is the most wonderful thing of all. That is committed love. It's entering into a covenant, do you see? Incidentally, that's what the marriage ceremony is about, isn't it? You know, honestly, the marriage ceremony is just not a nice little ceremony for tearful mothers to be able to tell people, say, it's a wonderful wedding. It's not that. It's a very serious cutting of the covenant. So you're entering into committed love with one another. Okay, what about our love to God? Is our love to God that type of committed love, or is it not? Most of us have been in the place where, quite honestly, we've been willing to give up Christianity. Normally when we were younger in the faith. Something's happened. Some person's come into our lives that's offended us. Oh, I can't take this Christianity. Now, when that comes up, that's not committed love. 
And we've got to go into new depths of love and see what love is all about. Now, where is there a simple statement of what our love to God is about? Well, it's found in the Gospels. And I want us to turn this morning to the Gospel of John and chapter 14. The Gospel of John 14. And we're going to have a look at verse 15 and verse 21. And by the way, this cuts through the claptrap of so-called devoted love in Christianity. There are so many people today who by their words and actions, you'd think they were the most devoted Christians you've ever seen in your life. Yet when it gets down to it, they are just not. And this is the acid test, the thing that sorts out the nonsense from that which is true. Now look what it says. Verse 15. If you love me, if you do, you will keep my commandments. Now that's the test. And in the ancient world, if you loved a king, you did what the king said. And if you didn't, he would actually say, you don't love me anymore. Oh, I do. No, I do, really. It's just that I felt I was right to do this. And the king would say, I gave you instructions and you didn't obey them, therefore you do not love me. And his army, by the way, will come and invade your country. That was the result in the ancient world. Jesus is using that, that whole thinking to say here, if you love me, then the acid test is keep my commandments. And in case you hadn't got that quite, in verse 21 he actually spells it out. Now look what it says. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them... He it is that loveth me. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And here, in the Greek, you actually have three what are called present participles. And these, this means that they are continuous in their movement. All right? Can I retranslate them to show you the push that's behind them? In verse 21, the first statement is this. He that is continually having my commandments is what it says. He that is continually having my commandments, comma. And the second statement says this, and continually is keeping them, or is continually keeping them, which apparently is bad English, but it sounds better. That's the second statement. He it is that is continually loving me. So he that continually loves God does two things. One, he is continually keeping the commandments of the Lord in front of his eyes. And secondly, he's continually doing, to the best of his ability, those commandments and fulfilling them. That's how you love God. See what an acid test this is, right? All the claptrap drops away at this point. All the spiritual work, sorry, words, drop away. Here is the acid test. Now I'm going to write that up. If you love God, A you will continually have his commandments. That means you will uh, continue in the word of God. And meditate upon it. Right? You'll constantly be doing those two things. By the way, some people have red letter editions of the Bible. Have you seen these? All the words of Jesus are in red letters. Now, that, that's all wrong. The push behind that Bible says this, that the words of Jesus are more important than any other words in the Bible. That's hooey. It's nonsense. 
the whole of the Bible is the Word of God. And honestly, if you read in Philippians a commandment, that is equivalent to Jesus saying that command to you. The Holy Ghost is saying it. So if you've got a red-letter Bible, well, praise the Lord, but colour the rest in red as well, will you? It's all the Word of God. And don't think that the, the actual words of Jesus carry more emphasis than any... It's all the living Word of God revealed by the Holy Spirit. So we continue in the Word of God and meditate. And B, the second thing is, uh, you do the words. Or you obey the commandments. Those two things show how much you love God. Now let's take those two things. First of all, continuing in the Word. This is why, incidentally, this little verse, this is why you will find mature Christians often say this, the amount you love the Word is the amount you love God. And that's true, you know. If you love someone, you want to get to know about them, don't you? Surely you do. You don't just say, oh, well, I don't care anything about you, I'm just going to marry you. You don't do that. You get to know something about them, get to know what their character is, what their thinking is. And the Word of God shows you who God is. And therefore, you continue in the Word of God. This means that for you as a Christian, the daily intake of the Word of God is vital. If you are not reading your Bibles for at least quarter of an hour to half an hour a day, then honestly, you will not grow in God, and you're not being devoted to Him. Right? Now, can I lay that absolutely on the line? I hear so often people who say, well, I've got nothing to minister. And so often you think, oh, poor old thing. God hasn't spoken to them. Do you know, nine times out of ten, they've got nothing to say or minister because they haven't spent any time reading the Word of God at all. Yes, that's the truth, you know. And you say to some people, what's God shown you today? Well, he hasn't shown me anything today. Do you see? Oh, dear. So often, now sometimes that's because, quite honestly, you're thinking in terms of major lessons. But all of us can say, well, I've got nothing else to say, but what was I reading this morning? And so you tell them about the bit that you were reading this morning. So often Christians complain and complain they're not making progress and it's because they're spending no time in the Word of God at all. All of us have got to spend time in the Word of God every day. It's no good just having a Bible teacher in the midst and thinking that's it. It's not it. You've got to read the Word of God yourself. Oh, but I don't understand parts of the Word. Well, join the boat, fella. Hallelujah. There were... In the early days of my Christianity, I couldn't remember the Word of God and I didn't understand the Word of God. But I be kept on reading. You can always read the Gospels. They're lovely, the Gospels are. You don't have to start in Obadiah or any place like that. Read the Gospels or 1 Samuel. But get in the Word of God so that you understand. Read the life of Abraham. These are simple things. You must do it. If you have trouble, ask another Christian whether, in fact, you could spend half an hour before you go to work. Not talking to one another, but just sitting in the same room, reading the Bible. You see? And so the, you say, hello, sit down, read your Bible for half an hour, and then say goodbye. And off you go to work. Do you know, I do this every morning, from half past seven to eight o'clock. You see? Because I don't start work till quarter to nine. But that's what I do. And a brother and I sit together. We don't say a word to one another, we just read the Bible. All around the fellowship, there are people, you know, who would be glad of this type of thing. Try and find someone within easy reach, that you can just spend half an hour reading. It's the, it gets discipline into your life. Do you know, so often when you meet Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, don't they shame us? They know certain parts of the Bible very well. Well, that's better than knowing nothing of the Bible well. 
And the Jews, we're always talking about how darkness is upon the Jews. Do you know, their knowledge of the Bible is fantastic. I remember hearing the testimony of Arnold Fruchtenbaum. <laughs> He's an American, in case you didn't guess, you see. And his father was a Jewish rabbi. And do you know, he said that from the word go, his father, as a little child, was trained in the Word of God. By the age of 13, he knew the first five books of the Bible off by heart. By the age of 18, he knew all the Old Testament off by heart. And do you know, at the age of 21, he had to pass an examination. Do you know what the examination was? He had a Bible which wasn't a scroll, it was a book like this. And at the age of 21, it was time for the rabbi's examination. You know what they did? He appeared in front of a board of examiners, and it was quite simple. There was only one question, that's all. And it was this. They took hold of a nail, six-inch nail. They, at random, chose any point on his Bible, and they nailed the nail through the Bible. And then they pulled it out again. Then they turned to the first page of the Bible, and they told him which word the nail had gone through. And the question was this. What other words has it passed through? in the whole Bible. That was the examination that he had to pass. And he passed every single word. The ands, the son of, right? And all the other words, right the way through the Bible. Do you know, it's really shaming, isn't it, when you think of it. It's absolutely dreadful, uh, the lack of Bible knowledge, generally, that, it is, it, that is around. It's so easy for us to think, well, we've got a Bible teacher in the fellowship. It's so easy to think, well, the tapes, it's on the tapes, and think that that means that you are dwelling in the Word of God. That's rubbish. In order to love God, the first thing you've got to do is really uh, uh, meditate on the Word of God and take it in. To obey His commandments, you first of all got to know what His commandments are. And this means that you've got to be able to give an answer to every man who asks you about certain things. You will get people who will ask you to defend your faith. A couple in the fellowship were telling me, you know, that when they were away on holiday, uh, they met someone who was very uncertain about eternal security. And this person had problems in eternal security. And they'd got three or four scriptures that seemed to suggest to them that they could lose their salvation. And this couple suddenly realized, hey, Roger's spoken about this, we've heard him. It's on the tape, but if only it were in our heads. And they couldn't answer. They didn't know what the answer was. Oh, what a tragedy. I remember how challenged I was, you know. I'd just done some studies in the Trinity. I hope to be speaking on the Trinity next year, right, and doing full studies on it. It's a wonderful subject. But I did it. Oh, and I got it all off, and it was all oh, thrilling. I'd had wonderful revelations. And then two weeks later, Jehovah's Witness knocked at the door. Do you know, the only scripture I could remember was John 1.1. And they said, well, tell us another scripture. And I was thinking, where was it now? I just couldn't remember. And I realized I hadn't gone deep enough in these things. I needed more time. Now I always carry about certain scriptures on most subjects in my head, you know, so that they're always ready, quick on the draw. That's what we should be, you know, always there. We've got to get into the Word of God. Let's have a look at uh, 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. One Peter, chapter three, and verse 
Look what it says. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. Be ready to give a defense of your faith. It's no good just knowing it's on a tape. That's very convenient for me because I can say, well, I've covered it on the tape. But the people want you to be able to tell them something about it, right? Let's take disarmament, which I understand came up on Tuesday, right? It's no good you're knowing that I've covered it somewhere. That's no good. It's no good even knowing that it's on the Millennial 2 tape. Right, for those of you who don't know, it's on Millennium 2. You've got to understand the reasoning behind it. We're filled with the devil's philosophy on all this. Now, we've got to say, what's God's idea on all of these things? Do you see? We must be ready to give a defense. Now, as we get into the Word of God and read it and take it in and understand it, so we begin to grow. That's why it's essential to have Bible teaching in the fellowship. It's essential. It's one of the key things. We've, you remember the two things that God gave me when the fellowship started? We've got to praise God without holding back, and we've got to uplift the Word of God. Those two things. If those things are right, then the whole fellowship will function. The moment a group of believers don't want to hear the Word of God is the day they're on the way out, folks. You see? And you get out of them, because they're going nowhere and fast. Do you see? We've got to make sure the Word of God is high and lifted up. By the way, turn back in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2... Two. There we are. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. And those of you who've got young children, you should know exactly what this is talking about. Do you? Those of you with rings round your eyes, do you know what it's like when a baby wakes up? My little girl. Honestly, she doesn't think about anything else. She's just hungry. She wants the word, and she's going to kick up a fuss until she gets it, or the milk, rather, you see? And that's what she wants, the milk. And, that's it. and we have to be disturbed, right? Ras plods out. <laughs> well, yes, I do actually, uh, well, quite often go in, and we have a time of fellowship. I lie on the floor. And um, we have a time of fellowship. Our little girl's sleeping right through now, so we're beginning to lose it. But do you see the urgency? Do you see the push behind this verse? You see? Desire the milk of the word like that. Now, do you? If you do not, then you see, this is a test of your love. I'm telling you how you can judge your love for the Lord in real terms. Forget the claptrap. Forget the facade that you put on in front of everyone else. That shows how much you really love the Lord. That uh, verse that I found in uh, 1 Timothy 2.19, I think it is, which says, The Lord knoweth those that are his. Have you read that verse? Have you ever read the second part of that verse? Let him that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you name the name of Christ, then stop sinning. Full stop. Wow. Now that's the acid test, isn't it, when it gets down. How shall a young man cleanse his way? Remember that? That's what it says in Psalm 119, verse 9. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereunto, according to thy word. Okay. That's Old Testament, you see? Okay, these, these are things. So we must meditate in the word of God. Let's go on to B. You've got to put into operation the word of God. So, let's take that Timothy, that verse in Timothy. You now know it's there. Let those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, the next stage is, okay, if that's what you want, God, I will do it. 
and off you go. Right? Trying your best. You're going to fall, repent, keep moving on as far as that thing is concerned. Look at your lives, see whether they match up to the word of God that you're taking in and correct them if they do not. Let's turn to the New Testament equivalent, shall we, of Psalm 119, verse 9, which is found in the book of James. James, which is before the book of Peter, of course. James 1, and verse 22. This word is vital. And this is one of the hardest words in Scripture to actually do. We're all people, you know, of massive bouts of enthusiasm that don't last very long. Look what it says. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. The problem with most people today is we can't even keep our own word, let alone God's word. You see? The number of Christians who actually make grand statements and then don't follow them through. We're all guilty of this. But God wants us to be men of our word. I could name example after example, you know. You lend some, some, someone some money. Oh, great, yes. Oh, I'll definitely repay it, sure, yes. Ten pounds a month, fine. And so the money passes over. You get the first payment, and that's the second payment. And then all of a sudden, you don't hear a dicky bird from them. That's it. That's all wrong. We're not keeping our word. Now, we've got to ask God to make us men of our word, and then we'll be men of his word. And here it says, when the word of God declares something, then let us do it and not deceive ourselves. So when God says something, that's the key. Do you love him? If you do love him, then you will do it. I love, by the way, the word delude instead of the word deceive. The Greek actually says, deluding yourselves, you see? Don't just be a hearer of the word, but a doer. Otherwise, you're deluding yourself. And as I was praying about this this morning, the Lord gave me a little picture, you know, of what this verse was talking about. Imagine a big railway station, and a man's hoping to go to Reading. So the railway station's Paddington, isn't it, right? And he's standing in Paddington. He's on platform five, right? And he's hoping to go to Reading. And over the tannoy, he hears the word. Um, passengers wishing to go to Reading should now be on platform seven. The train now standing at platform seven is the train to Reading. And this man hears the word and he does nothing about it. And he deludes himself that just by standing on platform five and catching the train at platform five, he's actually going to arrive at Reading. What would you say about that? That's stupid, isn't it? But we do it all the time. You meet Christians all the time who are not putting into operation the word of God, but they still think they're spiritual. They still think they're heading for maturity, still think they're going God's way. Oh yes, forget the word of God. Forget what the commands of the Lord are. No, no. We live in a day of cliches, of facades, you know, so you can, as long as you've got the right smile on, you know, say all the nice words, there you are dancing with the smile on your face. Wow, you're really loving the Lord, aren't you? Hooey! Of course you're not loving the Lord. The loving of the Lord is something that's much deeper than that. And then the picture is given of a man checking his appearance in the mirror. Men are the most vain of creatures, as 
you women well know. They're always accusing women of being that. They're really far more vain. And a man, I'm glad James says a man, he really understands people. A man checks his appearance. Now you imagine he's standing there in front of the mirror and he notices that the baby has actually been sick on his shoulder, <laughs> right? Yesterday's custard is still showing down here. His tie has this morning's egg on it. His hair is all over the place. And so he says, oh, I must do something about this. And he walks away from the mirror, and the moment he's left the mirror, he forgets. Just so busy with other things, off he goes. And he turns up to the party, to the gathering. He thinks he's the most spectacular thing ever. <laughs> that is what James is talking about. And do you know, if you are a person that reads the Word of God and you do not do it, that's exactly what you're like. Let's read it, you see. Verse 23, if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. He uses natural face because, of course, the, the word of God is a mirror of your life, not of your clothing, you see. So you look into the mirror and you say, do you know, that's me. I read the Bible, I'm convicted by that. Wow, I must do something about it. Then you close the Bible, you forget all about it. You see, off you wonder. Then he says, verse 24, for he beholdeth himself, but goeth his way. There it is. And straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. This initial flush of enthusiasm. Oh, I've been really convicted in the meeting this morning. Then off you go home. Where's the conviction? Out the window. Forget it. You see? You're a stupid, deluded individual. You really are. And then you think God's beaming down on you, saying, oh, aren't you wonderful? That's delusion of the biggest order you see? But look at the alternative, verse 25. And I love this because in verse 25, the word look is take a good, long, hard look. But he, but whosoever, takes a long, careful study into the perfect law of liberty. Isn't that amazing? The law, what's the law about? The law tells you where you're wrong and how to put it right. Why is it called the law of liberty? Because if you look into the law and ask the Holy Spirit to help you put it right, you'll be free. Wonderful. Of whatever has bound you, whatever's wrong, your temper, whatever it is, you will be free. It's the law of liberty, not the law of bondage. You come free. The law would be bondage to us, except that the Holy Spirit is here to fulfill the law in us. And the moment you say, yea, to the law of God, Lord, your law is right, it's true altogether, then the Holy Spirit says, I can work in that heart. The deluded person is the one who says, oh yes, and then forgets all about it. And look what it says. He looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his doings. Whatever he puts his hand to, he's going to be blessed. Because he looks into the word and he stays in the word and that word constantly corrects him. He's not interested in other people's lives. He's interested in his own lives. God will bless. This is what Jesus meant when he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek God's authority in everything and all these things will be added unto you. There will be blessings, wonderful blessings on every hand for you if you do this. But the key word here is continues therein. Oh dear, oh dear. The charismatic movement is not very good at continuing, you know. It's true. When I uh, talk about prayer meetings, right, as I did in the first fellowship talk, 
And I said, it's essential we all go to prayer meetings. You should be going to at least one prayer meeting. If you can't, then form one. Fine. All the attendance of the prayer meetings went up. Super. Great stuff. They're full. Then gradually mm, dribbled down. And it was the same remnant who was there before that was at the prayer meetings. What's that? That's a man who sees them, himself in the mirror, but he drops off. And these dropouts, you know, they're deluding themselves. You find this in all Christian circles. Someone at another place may give a talk on giving. Suddenly the giving rises. Wow, fantastic. Those who were giving before still keep giving. But then you come, there's a whole bunch, you know, who don't give a penny to the work of the Lord. Not really. They're received from the Lord. They're always ready for the handouts, you know, general fund and all the rest. They don't give anything. Ah, then a man comes on, talks about giving. Suddenly, woo, up it goes. But don't worry, in case you're worried about that, it soon drops off again. They don't continue in the word of God. All of us are guilty of this, you know. Or we, we think, oh, I'm really, the Lord's really convicted me. I'm not using my free time correctly. I should be helping people. So all of a sudden, you help everybody. Within a week, gradually down it drops again. This is part of us. Now, that's not loving the Lord. Loving the Lord is when you hear a word and continue in that word. How many words do we get in revelations do we get shared in our meetings? Yeah? And yet sometimes, directly after the meeting, you can see something going on that directly contradicts the revelation that's been given. And you think to yourself, this is crazy. I sometimes think, in some of the places I go to, I've poured myself out for an hour and a half tonight, and as soon as I've finished, such and such happened. Wow, what have I been doing wasting my time? You see? We've got to be those who are not filled with the first flush of enthusiasm. We have to continue in the work and in the Word of God. This is absolutely essential. And we must check our lives very carefully. This is the acid test of our love. It says, I'll read verse 25 again. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. And I love verse 26. If any man among you seem to be religious, do you see that phrase? He seems to be religious. Oh, looks fantastic. And bridles not his own tongue. That doesn't mean to say you mustn't speak a lot. But here's a man, and you know from hearing his words that his life is not sorted out. Then that man's religion, it's just vanity. Seems to be okay, but when you look at the nitty-gritty, it's just not there, you see. Let's um, have a look at the Old Testament to give a perfect example. Let's have a look at Operation Agag. Right? Go, or, or Operation Claptrap, as I call it sometimes. Uh, go to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. And let's have a, have a look at this. You know the story, I hope, very well. If you don't, please begin in your morning or evening readings tomorrow in 1 Samuel. Praise the Lord, then you'll soon get to know this very well indeed. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 1, and here is Saul as king. Verse 1, Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. And the word of God declares that we are kings and priests. Right? Some people talk about us being the sons of, of the king. You know, well actually you're the son of the king of kings. That's a bit different, you know. Uh, you're 
king of kings kids not king's kids actually and you are a king now here's Saul he's anointed to be king as you are by the Holy Spirit sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people over Israel now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord thus saith the Lord of hosts I remember that which Amalek did to Israel how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt now here's the command of the Lord Modernists take note, this is the word of God. Humanists take note, this is the word of God. Right? Look what God says, verse 3. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy him. This is God speaking. All that they have, spare them not. Slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox, sheep, camel and ass. So in other words, nothing is to be left of Amalek at all. That's the command given. These are the direct instructions of God. And Saul says, great, I'm king. Fantastic. And off he goes. Verse 4, Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim. 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And then he starts to attack. And look what happens in verse 7. And Saul smote the Amal uh, Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to shore that is over against Egypt. And verse 8 is amazing when you remember the command of the Lord. The command of the Lord is destroy everyone and everything. I don't want any of them left. Verse 8. He took Agag the king of the Am Amalekites alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they, they destroyed utterly. And do you know what they were going to do with these things? You might think this is wonderful. They were collecting all the best of the Amalekite produce. They were going to make a massive sacrifice to God. Isn't that wonderful? A big display of how much they loved him. Or a wonderful bonfire going up. And it would take all day to sacrifice these things. Won't God be pleased? That's it. You see Christians in the charismatic movement like this all the time. Big dramatic gestures of their spirituality. You see? Look what happens. Verse 10. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me. He's turned back from following me. He is no longer moving on. Why? Because God had given him commands and he just wasn't doing them. Saul was doing his own thing, thank you very much. And look at Samuel, and it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And so often when God convicts us of things and we do not do them, or we do them for two seconds, and then off we go and forget it altogether, it's the Holy Spirit who is grieved. It's the Holy Spirit who cries all night in our lives, you know. Jesus told about the two, didn't he? And one man said that he wouldn't do it, but then he went and did it. And then there was another one who said he'd do it, but he went and he didn't do it. He said, which one was the more righteous of those? Well, I prefer people who say at first, well, I'm not sure about this, but then they go and do it, you know. And Saul wanted a dramatic gesture of dedication, but there was no dedication in his heart. He knew what the word of God was, and he was not going to do it. Not at all. And then, verse 12, And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, 
It was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him, set him up a place, and he's gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and look at Saul, the big spiritual charismatic Christian, right? And Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I perform the commandment of the Lord. I say, great, here we are. Oh, hallelujah, I'm really dedicated and sold out. Fantastic. You know, smile on their face, big beaming smile. And then Samuel just says a little thing, look. And Samuel said, what meaneth then this bleating of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? You've obeyed the word of the Lord. Where on earth is this bleating coming from? And I wonder about charismatic movements, uh, meetings sometimes. And I speak as a charismatic, may I say. I wonder. Sometimes I think that God listens down. All he can hear, you know, is the bleating of the sheep, the lowing of the oxen. And he looks down, all these people apparently sold out to him, and they, they haven't done the first thing that he's told them. And sometimes people stand up and they minister. And you know, you can't hear what they're saying because there's such a din of the bleating of sheep coming from their lives, isn't there? It really is so. And there, there, there they are explaining some deep spiritual point. And you know full well that their lives are not in any way sorted out before God. And this bleating suddenly breaks out in the midst of the meeting. And those of us listening to the Holy Spirit can hear the bleating going on. Beloved, God says this, the acid test of love is those who continually keep his word. And therefore who continually have his word always before their eyes. You'll notice with God, his commitment doesn't run out. He says he's going to bless you, he'll fulfill it to the letter. Hallelujah. The words he said about you will be fulfilled. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God will not say, oh, well, I got a bit bored about that. You know, it was all right for the first year, but after that, well, I lost interest in it. We're going to make it, which is the fantastic thing. God's looking for the same love to be given back to him. And we've got to ask God to bring us to this place where the word of God will speak to us, where we will make it our own, our own revelation, and where we will obey every part and principle of the word of God to the best of our ability. If you can't, don't be downhearted. God looks on your heart. If the willingness is there, that's acceptable. You know, if you can't do these things, if you can't fulfill the law of God, right, in, in a particular area, then God understands that, but he by the Spirit will make sure you come to the place where you can. But this is the acid test. I just want to end by saying one thing here. Everything you do for God and everything you set out to do for God is going to be tested. Right? Can I make that clear now? Every single thing you want to do for God and he challenges you about is going to be tested. Those who've come to this fellowship because God's led them, you will be tested like mad in your first year or two. You will, right? And do you know why? God is seeing how deep your dedication is. Whether you're just on the joyride, the fun life, after what you want, or whether you're really going for him. Let's look at the tapes. The tapes today run extremely well. I doubt whether even Keith, who now does it, knows the agony that went, was gone through by Mike Bauer and others during the early days of the tape ministry. It was terrible. There were personality clashes. There were difficulties on every side. And here were we with a vision of a tape ministry. And suddenly everything came against it. 
Now, some people wanted to give up. Let's drop it. You know, let's drop it. Obviously not of God. And other people said, no, let's do the quick, the easy thing. Let's get a firm to produce them. No, 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 no. God was testing that thing. And because the people there were determined and they gritted their teeth and got through, God has brought it into a verdant place, right, where it is all excellent, the way it is run. I go right around the country and always they say, it's so excellent, the quality is excellent, the communication is excellent. It's come through the period of testing into blessing. Everything we do is going to be blessed. The prayer for Israel meeting is going to be tested if it hasn't been already. If we're, do you think Satan honestly is going to stand by while we just pray away for Israel? Do you think he's going to? Of course not. He is going to test our dedication to that vision of Israel. And there will be people who came to the prayer for Israel in the early days and honestly, in their hearts, they've grown a bit dull about this. God's testing. And I'll tell you this, I think prayer for Israel has got through that. And there's immense blessing going on, you see. The prayer for healing is just the same. Oh, so we're all going to gather together, we're going to see God's healing power. Oh, really? It's going to be tested to the full. But it's the determination of your own heart that is being tested, right? My own Bible teaching was really severely tested. We have to get through, put our heads down and say, this is what we're going to do. We as a fellowship will go through constant periods of testing. We will not come through to things easily. God's testing the real love of our hearts. And in that period of testing, you will see who the friends of God are. You really will. You'll also see who those babies are around. They are the ones squawking and complaining. Praise God. Others will just be quiet with their heads down and plowing on in the vision. Everything we do is going to be tested. Many people in the fellowship have a vision for our own building and plot of land. Not everyone, but certain people. Do you honestly think it's just going to plop in? Oh, it's just going to be simple. Then you've been reading too many testimony books. That's what I would say. You know these testimony books, don't you? They don't tell you of the years of agony. They just tell you of the end result. And so they make it sound as if it all happened in six months. You know, fant oh, fantastic. And then we prayed and, and then the building came up. And then you ring them up and say, how long? Oh, it was 20 years. <laughs> oh, didn't tell you that, you know. Or I was wonderfully healed. Hallelujah. This man came and put his hands on my head. I was wonderfully healed. I bounced out of bed. Wow, it was fantastic. <laughs> and that's it. And then sometimes you should say, well, how long were you ill with this? Oh, well, I had it for 15 years. Oh, you don't hear that, you know. And there are you. You find yourself sick. And... God wants to heal you, and you know that he does. And they've been, you've been prayed for, and nothing's happened. Well, 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 what do you do? Oh, well, obviously the Bible's wrong about God being the healer. No, it isn't. God will test us to the full. He will test all the elders. He's going to test all the deacons. He's going to test any person who's in a position of responsibility. All the leaders, all the Friday groups, when I come on to those, I'll be telling you what the acid test of your dedication and commitment is through the Friday groups. You will be tested. We as a fellowship were tested enormously in the early days, in those Friday night meetings that we had. It was terrible sometimes. It was awful. I really thought that we were actually setting up something that was going to vie for patients, you know, with grailing well at times. I really did. I thought we'd, we must be worse than anything that's found in grailing well. It was so awful. But praise God, there was a core of people determined to grit their teeth and go on with God. And we got through. This is the acid test of our love. If ever God lays on your heart to establish his work or part of his work in this fellowship, 
Don't you think it's going to be easy? It's going to need all the tenacity that you've got. And that's why in 1 Peter 5 it says, don't be surprised. Sorry, 1 Peter 1. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you. Don't be surprised. But the great news is, when you get through, there are blessings galore on every hand. It's obedience to the Word of God that is the acid test. And so the Word of God must be a king pivot as far as fellowship life is concerned. You as an individual and we as a fellowship have got to have the Word of God held high. This is why in our fellowship we have to correct the gap that we have as far as new Christians are concerned. It is essential that new Christians who get saved and who come into the fellowship are given a course of basic discipleship. And we this winter, we always make strides in the winter as a fellowship. We this winter must look to how God is leading in this area so that these people learn what it is to get into the Word of God and, of course, into prayer. And so, therefore, our prayers have got to be concentrated on this aspect for this winter. How are we going to tighten up so that people know that they are being discipled in the midst, right? This is why every group leader here should be seeking the Lord and every person who's a member of our fellowship should be seeking God as to what the next move for the fellowship really is. Whatever it is, it's going to be an extension of our love for Jesus Christ. Here's the acid test. Those who continually love me, continually have my word before their eyes and continually do it. How many, I wonder, in the midst today are hearers of the word? You could listen for hours to Revelations, but you don't do any of it. And how many actually are doers of the word? Allow the Holy Spirit to really speak to us today. The Holy Spirit is gentle, loving, forgiving. We have to confess those things that we've given up, those things that we started off so well, but now we look back and we think, well, I lost that, didn't I? God's not going to condemn you. He's going to fill you with his Holy Spirit to give you renewed, permanent energy to move on in that revelation. Next time, I'll be speaking about body ministry and we'll be understanding what body ministry is and how meeting should never become stereotyped. Praise the name of the Lord. God bless you all. Amen. <laughs>